This is Dennis Ramundi. I'm here with my co-host, Bill Goldberg, author of American Veda, our podcast, Spirit Matters Talk, spiritmatterstalk.com. Our guest today on the show is uh, Joseph Prabhu. He is a professor of philosophy and religion at California State University, Los Angeles, and is also an occasional visiting professor at the University of Chicago. Uh, He has been a senior fellow of the Center for the Study of World Religions at Harvard University. Uh, And uh, Joseph, I want to thank you very much for taking the time to come on uh, our program today. Well, thank you very much for having me. Uh, I look forward to a lively conversation. Joseph, it's Phil. Um, Let's uh, fill our uh, listeners in a little bit about who you are and your background. You've had a distinguished academic career. They could tell by your name and uh, whatever accent remains that you're from India. Um, And they would probably assume you're Hindu, but you're not. Um, Maybe you can tell us something about your background and what brought you to the uh, study of philosophy of religion. Well, uh, believe it or not, I was uh, in a previous incarnation, and as you mentioned, uh, my uh, supposedly Hindu background, you probably know that Hindus have many incarnations. <laughs> so, yes. so in one of them, I, I, the most recent one, uh, I was an economist. In fact, uh, mm. I was taught at the Delhi School of Economics by the Nobel Prize winning economist Amartya Sen um, in the 60s and uh, was had done sort of six years of economics uh, before I got a scholarship to to Germany, and one of the people, besides Amartya Sen, who was uh, influential in sort of turning me towards philosophy, was uh, Ramchandra Gandhi, the grandson of uh, Mahatma Gandhi. Uh, and uh, I then started my studies of philosophy and religion uh, in Germany, went on to England, and then finally came here to Boston uh, for my PhD. Um, So that's by way of saying that uh, while I no longer work uh, professionally uh, in economics, though I I am occasionally invited to give lectures uh, by rather Mm -hmm. careless people who don't know (laughs) Uh, uh, and I did that recently in Argentina. Um, uh, but I, I, I maintain a sort of serious interest in the philosophy of economics. Uh, and in my work, uh, which is uh, both interdisciplinary and intercultural, because uh, as I move between the United States, uh, Europe, and India on a fairly regular basis, so uh, that uh, intercultural aspect is reflected also in my academic work right. a- and in my sort of professional work generally. <laughs> Joseph, I wanted to ask you, you're, you are a professor of philosophy and religion. Do you make a distinction between religion and spirituality? Uh, yes, I do. Um, uh, uh, but, all right, let me say that and then also... Uh, as we're mentioning spirituality, uh, and I've I've looked at some of the other distinguished guests whom you've had on your show, um, 
And while I haven't listened to, to all of them, uh, I've listened to a couple. Uh, so on the first point, uh, Dennis, uh, yes, uh, spirituality I see as, um, if you want, a more experiential uh, matter, mm-hmm. whereas uh, religion uh, you know, incorporates much more than experience. There's doctrine, there's ritual, there's obviously the institutional and material side of, of religion. Uh, and uh, in that sense, uh, I, I would say that that would be uh, mm-hmm. one distinction. Uh, and, um, but the other related point, uh, which has to do with the very title of your, of your show, Spirit Matters, is that uh, I uh, think that matter matters also. (laughs) Uh, And uh, in that sense, uh, don't make, well, of course, there's a distinction between spirit and matter. Um, I uh, don't make uh, a dichotomy between them. Uh, They're not, uh, spirituality is for me, uh, not a sort of separate uh, sphere. It's conceptually distinct, mm-hmm. but it's not a separate sphere uh, in that I tend to see spirituality as really the sort of depth dimension of material life mm-hmm. and and therefore, like a, uh, I guess, renegade economist, uh, do take economic and social and political life very seriously, mm. uh, and that's also reflected in my work. Mm-hmm. Joseph, um, maybe you can make a distinction for people um, between the philosophy of religion or how philosophers uh, look at religion, what the what the a mandate of a philosopher religion is, as opposed to other disciplines such as religious studies or the sociology of religion, or the psychology of religion, or theology, uh, just uh, uh, to give non-academic listeners a sense of what it means to be a philosopher of religion. Uh, Yes, well, that's a very uh, good question, uh, because the philosophy of religion looks at religion from a sort of primarily conceptual standpoint. and deals with, uh, so for example, if just to mention a couple of sort of typical problems, uh, what is the nature of God and or, and or an ultimate reality like the Tao or Brahman or uh, Ishvara? Or, so um, it's, it's looking at the sort of conceptual differences between these uh, realities. Uh, I mean, so a clear difference is that the Tao is not personal, whereas uh, the notion of God, at least in most usages, is personal. Uh, and similarly, Brahman is also impersonal uh, and has a certain relationship with the world, which is more inclusive than at least the traditional notion of God, which sees the world as something that is created by God, uh, and where God, at least in most traditional usages, as a reality, is thought to exist 
separate from the world. Mm-hmm. So those differences, of course, uh, do matter because uh, to take one example from mysticism, if one were to say that uh, mysticism aims for a union with God, then if one argues philosophically that God is ontologically transcendent to humans, where God is infinite and we humans are finite, then that makes a union with God in any straightforward sense problematic because uh, how can a finite thing really unite in any real or robust sense with something that is infinite? And uh, so Christian spirituality, for example, that maintains this distinction of God's sort of separateness says, no, it's not a union. It's perhaps at most a communion with God. And um, a sort of strict union is, is sort of ruled out. Now, that would not be the case necessarily in other kinds of mysticism, uh, where, let's say, in the notion of Brahman, uh, where that kind of separateness between God or the ultimate reality and the world is not maintained, mm-hmm. uh, it is possible and it, it is coherent to talk about a union with Brahman. So, uh, you know, that goes some way towards explaining the differences between different kinds of mysticism. Right. Uh, uh, Joseph, to mention, you know, just, yeah. Joseph, you, uh, from 2005 to 2011, you served on the Board of Trustees uh, and the Executive Committee of the Council of a Parliament of World Religions. They had a big meeting this year. I know Phil was there. Uh, what drew you to that? How did you get involved with that? That uh, Being on the board, you are obviously very involved with it. And what does that parliament uh, hope to accomplish, or what would you like to see that parliament accomplish? Uh, okay, well, that's uh, one part of my work, which is on interfaith um, mm-hmm. uh, relations, and, and we can certainly talk about that. I, I would like, at some stage, if it's uh, of interest to you to sort of come back to uh, my role as a philosopher and, and also as a culture critic. Uh, right. So, well, you can you can uh, take those in any uh, sequence you like. If you'd like to go back to that and then come to the uh, Parliament of World Legends after you discuss the uh, the philosophical points, uh, that's fine too. So, however you want to take it. Yeah. Okay. Then, uh, as we are really talking about. Uh, you know, the question of what a philosopher does and mm-hmm. how that's distinctive from being a theologian or a scholar of religious right. studies, uh, that's the uh, sort of concern. Uh, but when I sort of, uh, the book that I'm working on now, uh, which is uh, on um, someone who was uh, important to me and continues to be important, um, uh, Raimundo Panikkar is sort of a uh, son of a Hindu father, hence the name Panikkar, and mm-hmm. um, a Catholic mother, Spanish Catholic mother, um, uh, uh, who has been influential in my life. I sort of he died in 2010, mm-hmm. um, but 
he, he was influential in, in at least two ways, and as, as it turns out, it'll also overlap with uh, interreligious matters and the parliament. Uh, but I'll come to, to that in, in a little while. Um, but uh, Panikkar was someone who uh, did two or three important things. Um, one is that he was a pioneer in uh, interreligious dialogue, um, done in a serious manner. In other words, mm-hmm. he lived his Hindu-Christian existence uh, all to, to the very end, uh, and as I was telling Phil uh, informally, uh, his last will and testament specified that part of his ashes were to be buried in a Catholic cemetery in his native Spain, and the other part were to be buried in Benares, uh, to be immersed in the Ganges in Benares, wow. behind a house that he maintained there for, for many years. So, um, one of the things that Panikkar did, and which I'm very sympathetic to, is is taking, uh, first of all, religious life very seriously. And in Panikkar's case, it meant, uh, you know, that uh, it wasn't just uh, doctrines and beliefs. He actually shared the life of uh, Hindu Hindu and Buddhist communities and uh, tried to establish uh, what and how interreligious dialogue should uh, proceed uh, in both a uh, respectful but also a critical fashion. And, uh, you know, that doesn't always happen because, uh, in general, uh, either people, uh, you know, are deeply sort of suspicious of each other, or if they do, on the more liberal side, try to engage in dialogue, then they usually sort of try to play nice and be polite. Um, but uh, Panikkar honored the differences between religions, and he thought that those differences had a lot to teach us, and, uh, and that the dialogue should be a robust dialogue about mm-hmm. those differences and also about the commonalities. Uh, and uh, that's, so that was one thing that he did. Uh, the second thing that he did was to establish something that has now become more common, uh, both in religious and in theological circles, which was to look at this phenomenon called uh, multi-religious belonging. Uh, in his case, as I said, that was sort of biographically determined because uh, Hindu and Christian life was uh, part of his upbringing. Uh, but uh, the kind of theology that he developed was uh, very interesting because the Christian theology uh, that he developed certainly had very strong Hindu and Buddhist influences. And he wrote, I mean, he, he wrote more than 70 books in six languages uh, and um, uh, wrote on scholarly books on Hinduism and Buddhism, and in fact, uh, one of the books, which is a 900-page translation and commentary on the Vedas called The Vedic Experience, uh, is is used in, you know, classrooms around the world. Uh, It's it's a very authoritative text. So, um, he developed uh, a Hindu-Catholic theology, uh, which 
uh, is the result of many, many years of immersion in, in, in both Hinduism and in, in Christianity. Uh, and as I say, that has uh, quite a lot of interest, both because of something, it's something new, uh, and uh, also, I think, sort of points the way to the future. I mean, as, as you both know, uh, our future is increasingly an interreligious future. Uh, my own daughter is married to a Jew, and, uh, you know, I, I develop uh, interesting liturgies for maintaining both the Christian and Jewish side of their children's life and their life. And uh, likewise, you know, I have a number of students who, are, who occasionally ask me to sort of marry them, and uh, they are interreligious folks. So uh, this sort of problematic, which operates at many different levels, is um, uh, something that Panikkar sort of pioneered. And I'm glad you brought up Panikkar. And before you continue, Joseph, let me... Uh, let the listeners know, in case they uh, have never heard his name, uh, that he he's a very important figure, um, and his name is spelled P-A-N-I-K-K-A-R, so they can they can Google him. I had the pleasure of hearing him speak once, and it was a very profound experience. But do continue. I I, I know you you wanted to. Speak uh, specifically to talk about this phenomenon of uh, multiple religious mm-hmm. belonging that he represents. Yes, because it is it is something new, and and again, uh, I, I think there are interesting cultural differences. I mean, here in the West, the the boundaries and the demarcations uh, between religion operate. Uh, in somewhat a different way from how they operate in in India. Here, if someone says that she is a Christian, it means, and she probably might even define herself as saying, well, to say that I'm Christian is to say that I'm not Hindu, I'm not Jewish, I'm not Buddhist, etc. Uh, whereas, uh, and, you know, it has to do with uh, our cultural and intellectual history. I mean, it goes all the way back to Aristotle. And, uh, you know, Aristotle's idea of identity, that to say that something is something is to say that it's not something Mm. else. Mm -hmm. Whereas in India, the notion of identity is quite different. Mm -hmm. Uh, In India, the notion of identity is not marked in terms of difference. It's marked really in terms of assimilation. So to take an example, uh, the the poet Kabir uh, uh, who was, uh, in a sense, both Hindu and Muslim, uh, had uh, little difficulty in, in saying that he was both. Mm. Um, you know, and I could give you many mm. other examples. Now, now Joseph, so, uh, could uh, I interrupt you for a second? I want, I want to ask about that. I'm very curious. Sure. If he said he's both uh, uh, Hindu and, and Muslim, or if, if someone said they were Hindu and Christian, uh, I, I assume that from the Hindu perspective, from the institution, from the actual... Uh, religious leaders uh, of Hinduism, that might be okay. But from from Islam, from Christianity, that is not acceptable. And and or does it not matter what the institutions think if the person, him or herself, uh, consider themselves both? Well, that's a very good question because I mean, obviously, 
the way Hinduism is structured, there is no uh, pope or uh, you know authoritative figure um, that um, determines uh, what one's belonging is. Uh, or, or, uh, but in both Christianity and Islam, of course, that's uh, not the case. There is this sort of more institutional mm-hmm. uh, authority. Uh, and uh, so, yes, that is a, a, a legitimate question. Uh, in the case of Panikkar, he was fortunate that his bishop uh, in Benares was uh, an extremely forward-looking and liberal person and uh, thought that this um, uh, multiple identity was important for a number of reasons. Uh, uh, sadly, uh, Christianity, even though it's existed in India from at least, I mean, we have written sources from the the third century, but um, there is a very strong oral tradition that Thomas the Apostle, mm-hmm. one of Christ's 12 apostles, uh, came to India uh, in the late part of the first century, and uh, there's a whole mount in Chennai. Yes, in there's in there. Yeah, uh, which is called Thomas Mount. And uh, so there's a whole very, very strong tradition that um, Christianity came there at least, uh, um, you know, from the time of Thomas. And we have written uh, sources from at least the early part of the the third century. But in spite of that, uh, because of political and, and colonial history, uh, Christianity is uh, regarded as a Western religion, and uh, that has had uh, rather uh, tragic, uh, tragic might be a little strong, but still unfortunate uh, consequences for uh, Christians in India today who are being, I'm sorry to say, uh, harassed and in some cases persecuted. And some of that has to go back to this fact that uh, Christianity is regarded as a sort of Western imposition. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Panikkar's bishop was mindful of that and, and thought that uh, yeah, I think it would, be, it would be good, not just for the sake of getting along in India, but also because of the fact that uh, Christianity itself uh, has had a a very varied uh, cultural history. It mm-hmm. began as a Jewish faith and then moved to Asia Minor and the Greek world and then from, from there to the Roman world. So uh, one of the things that Panikkar sort of raised as an important question is that if Christianity could be translated from its Jewish roots into um, uh, Greek categories and then into sort of Roman law, uh, why, if there is very strong indications that um, even if Christ did not go to India, which he probably didn't, uh, <laughs> the people in India will tell you exactly where he was. Yes, uh-huh. exactly in Kashmir, <laughs> I, I've you seen the grave and so on. Yes, yes. So, uh, <laughs> but in any case, the 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 sort of philosophical and cultural challenge, uh, which is uh, in fact Panikkar's first well-known book, 
the unknown Christ of Hinduism, mm. uh, the unknown Christ of Hinduism. And, and by the way, I mean, Panikkar uh, was quick to add that Christ was unknown to Christians as well. Mm. So, mm -hmm. um, uh, because Christ seen as a mystical symbol is, in Panikkar's formulation, uh, goes well beyond historical and um, institutional Christianity. Right. Mm. And so Christians know the denominational uh, Christians and the institutional Christianity knows the Christ phenomenon in one particular way. Uh, but so do Hindus and so do others right, right. Uh, mm. as well. J Joseph, uh, not what, is, uh, what is your, if I could ask, uh, uh, religious identity, if any? Well, uh, no, I mean, I, I'm not uh, shy about saying that. I, I like Panikkar, uh, uh, but in a slightly different way. I, I regard myself as a Buddhist Christian. Uh, I mean, the Buddhist influence has been very strong in my life, uh, but it's, it's Indian Buddhism more than, uh, mm -hmm. obviously, Eastern Buddhism. And uh, I've certainly been uh, a scholar and a practitioner of, of both traditions. So, um, uh, in my own case, I, I've followed in Panika's footsteps, but as I said, it's been more the Buddhist rather mm. than the, the Hindu side. But uh, again, for people who know about Indian Buddhism, it, it grows out of Hinduism. And, uh, yeah. You know, yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm curious, and this is maybe a, um, a, a, a digression, but... Um, there are many examples, less uh, well-known and illustrious uh, than Panikkar, of uh, people who have a sort of dual identity as Christians and as Hindus. One of them was Bede Griffiths, and I'm curious whether he and Panikkar knew each other. Oh, yes. No, they're, they're very close friends. Ah. Um, and uh, they came to India at roughly the same time. Ah. Uh, and, uh, and I've written about Bede uh, quite a lot, whom I knew personally, uh -huh. whose ashram, whose ashram I spent time in, and um, uh, yes, they they were they were allies. I mean, the the difference, uh, which is uh, certainly worth commenting on, is that Bede was more of a poet, um, and his 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 particular mysticism. Uh, was a sort of poetic mysticism, you know, the marriage of East mm -hmm. and West, and, and psychological, whereas uh, Panikkar was very much the philosopher mm. and... Um, scholar. Uh, yeah, scholar. And so, you know, but, but their meetings were, uh, which I, you know, personally sat in on, at least on oh, some of them. What a privilege. Were, yes, no, it was a great privilege, and uh, it was also tremendous fun to see uh, you know, their different uh, but complementary approaches mm -hmm. um, to to this sort of uh, what what Bede called the sort of marriage of East and West right. and, uh, you know, what Panikkar right. called Hindu-Christian existence. Right. Uh, Joseph, I wanted to ask, uh, uh, y you consider yourself a Buddhist Christian. Uh, uh, other uh, uh, Panikkar, a, a, a Hindu-Christian... Is there what is the value of having a religious identity? What, what if? Uh, why isn't it just as worthwhile for somebody to say, "All right, I'm going to take the spiritual uh, teachings or techniques of of this religion and and 
if I want to go to a Hindu ceremony, I'll enjoy doing that. If I want to do a Buddhist ceremony, I'll do that. I, I'm speaking about myself now, sort of. I, I grew up in one particular, uh, of one particular religious identity, but I, I don't see myself, and it's everybody's own choice, uh, a particular, uh, a specific value in, in uh, adhering to, to one group. Is that just a personal choice? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, I mean, uh, I would say, uh, and, and Panikar and I, you know, both agree on this, that, that uh, this, this matter of, of um, multiple religious belonging is, uh, in, in both our cases, uh, I mean, in Panikar's case, you know, biographically, because uh, of the, uh, his parentage, but in my case, because I sort of grew up in India among Hindus and Buddhists, um, uh, that uh, I, I absorbed through school and through my sort of cultural influences so much of that sort of cultural world uh, that, uh, I mean, from an early age, to give you an example, from the age of eight, I think, uh, I you know, would see the Christian mass celebrated Hindu style, you know, um, and uh, that left a very strong Mm -hmm. uh, impression on me. So uh, uh, I I certainly, Dennis, uh, think that it's important to go deep into a tradition. And if that tradition uh, fulfills a person, then there's no reason to... um, uh, Sort of mix identities. Uh, in my own case, uh, I found that uh, and continue to find that that Buddhism strengthens my Christianity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> my colleague uh, Paul uh, Nitter, who used to teach at Union Theological Seminary in New York, <laughs> wrote a title that I think I could uh, certainly endorse: uh, "Without the Buddha, I could not be a Christian." Mm. Uh, and uh, I would say that that is roughly true in my my own life. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think I, 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 perhaps that may be going a little too strong. I could certainly be a Christian, but uh, what I would say uh, in a slight variation on Paul Nitter's title is that certainly being Buddhist has sort of strengthened my Christianity in my own self-perception. I'll give you an example. The One of the sort of key Christian concepts is the concept, which in fact is biblical, uh, of self-emptying. Kenosis is the, is the Greek word for it. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Buddhists provide the most rigorous uh, methodology and practice of self-emptying. Um, you know, the shunyata, emptiness, and the practice of shunyata is a very concrete uh, and rigorous way of sort of self-emptying so that it's not just left at, at a abstract doctrinal level, but actually mm-hmm. practiced. Yes. So, th- Go ahead. No, so in that sense, uh, to, to answer Dennis's point, yes, by all means, I've heard lots of people like Thomas Keating and others who yes. you know, certainly regard themselves as Christian uh, and would not in spite of the fact that Keating has clearly learnt from Buddhism, uh, would not call themselves Buddhist Christian. Right. Uh, 
and I honestly respect that, obviously, um, you know. But uh, in my own case, as I say, uh, th- there's been so much sort of Buddhist influence as a result of my upbringing mm. that um, uh, it just seemed natural. Yeah, and you're not alone in that. I've heard that many times from certain Christians, especially the ones who are uh, mystically oriented. Um, I want to shift gears, if I may, uh, to get back to your point that matter matters. Um, You are not an ivory tower philosopher. Uh, Well, I'm sure you spend plenty of time in the uh, metaphorical (laughs) ivory tower, but you, you are also very active and engaged socially uh, and uh, in terms of issues of, of, the, of the real world, so to speak, in um, a religious context. You're extremely active in the interfaith world. As Dennis mentioned earlier, you were uh, very active in the parliament world religions. Um, how do you see this intersection of philosophy, in your case, and social activism, or are they... Uh, just separate parts of your life. And why do you think it's important? Because the world is, is first of all, we live in this world, and, uh, I mean, many religions teach us uh, that compassion, uh, you know, for, is, is one of the key religious virtues. I mean, it's uh, love God and love your neighbor is, you know, in a sense, both the cardinal teachings of, of Judaism and Christianity uh, and many other religions uh, as well, even if they don't use the word God. Uh, so that the love of the world, the love of neighbor, is uh, uh, a, a key sort of religious precept. And when I say that matter matters, uh, I am... Not let me put it this way. I mean, Christianity or Buddhist Christianity for me is uh, a this worldly affair. Uh, I mean, the other world is is not, at least for me. uh, I mean, you know, obviously, like a philosopher and like a religious practitioner, I speculate about it. But my waking hours are really spent not sort of speculating about this, but but really trying to. Uh, practice compassion in a concrete way and uh, so uh, that that also ties in with my earlier work and and continuing work as an economist I I, I think I probably Philip and Dennis might be the only uh, or at least certainly one of the few um, guests on your show who would regard Karl Marx as a spiritual influence Mm -hmm. Uh, Explain uh, that because. Yeah. Uh, sorry. No, I said. Uh, explain that. I'm curious. Well, because uh, Marx was someone who, in a secular way, was uh, very concerned mm-hmm. with um, what was happening to Europe uh, after the Industrial Revolution, and you know, with the the uh, tremendous disruption. Uh, both political and economic, and Marx's, uh, this is a long topic which we may not have time to go into, but but, uh, I've certainly written about it. Uh, And so, by the way, because that's a tradition that uh, I sort of broadly Mm -hmm. see myself in, it comes out of Latin America, but is now sort of spread 
uh, in other to other parts of the world the lib- tradition called liberation theology mm-hmm. uh, and uh, it's the tradition that says no uh, one should shift the emphasis of religious life into first of all a this worldly emphasis and secondly making sure that uh, the uh, social life and economic life are conducted on ethical lines right. you know the, the, the current pope of the Roman Catholic Church I mean this is his particular angle on Christianity on theology is it not that's absolutely right I mean he comes out of this mm-hmm. tradition I mean in Argentina they call it theology of the people but broadly speaking it's from this sort of uh, liberation uh, perspective a- and uh, there's an interesting story. One of the, the great sort of figures of liberation theology was the late uh, Brazilian uh, Archbishop Dom Hilda Camara, uh, who was a very uh, compassionate man. And Camara uh, remarked with some irony, says, you know, it's very strange. When people see me helping the poor, they call me a saint. But when they hear me asking, which I often do, why are they poor, then they suddenly call me a communist. (laughs) (laughs) Well put. Uh, And uh, to me, the question, what structures in society and what conditions in society produce the poor uh, is uh, a very vital question. I mean, that's the difference between charity and justice. Mm. You know, charity tends to the poor, but justice really concerns itself with what is producing poor people in the first place. Joseph, in, um, as a philosopher and observer of, of world conditions, as someone who cares a great deal, um, I wonder what your assessment of, of this issue is. There's a lot of what we think of in, as religious violence and religious conflict in the world. And to some people, religion and religious differences um, and religious ideology is is the cause of that conflict. Other people would look at it and say, well, in most cases, religion is an excuse for conflicts that arise out of uh, things like, uh, Marxists would say, access to resources and um, social justice issues and power issues and that sort of thing. How do you how do you see that interplay of uh, social forces and religion and the the uses to which religion is put? Well, I and thank you. That's a brilliant question uh, and uh, one that I have to speak about again. Uh, you know, there there is uh, Phil, as you know, here in Los Angeles, a, a group that uh, sort of doesn't focus exclusively on that question, uh, but nonetheless deals with these issues of how one um, relates religion to social life. Uh, And uh, in general, I would be somewhere in the middle in that uh, I uh, certainly see that uh, because the stakes are so high um, in religion that uh, religion by its very nature tends to be uh, conflictual. Uh, so I, I don't shy away from that, and I think it's important that 
uh, we not do that because there's just sort of too much going on around us, uh, not just, you know, in the, the obvious examples that are coming from Paris and San Bernardino, but uh, all over the world. I mean, uh, it's uh, religious strife uh, is, or at least what may be broadly called religious strife. But of course, your question is is uh, a very important one to investigate, uh, and and there's no one sort of blanket answer because I mean, obviously, conditions of conflict differ from place to place, from situation to situation. But there's mm-hmm. no question in my mind that that religion, um, you know, easily allows itself. Uh, in some cases, it's the uh, you know the prime motivator. In other cases, it's sort of drawn into conflict that has its sources elsewhere. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think it's important for religious practitioners not to sort of take the easy way out and say, ah, scriptures, you know, all preach compassion and peace and that stuff. Because right. there's just, uh, you know, if, if you don't take that seriously, then mm-hmm. if you want the... You know, the, 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 the other side has uh, a very easy opening. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm talking, you know, about people like uh, Hitchens and Dawkins and, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, people who um, quite easily point to the fact that, of course, uh, religion is in, in many cases involved. So mm-hmm. I, I think it is a very serious question that, uh, and, 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 you know, as I say, I, I think the more thoughtful religious people like the late René Girard of Stanford, uh, who had, uh, you know, a very profound uh, book on religion and violence, which has had tremendous influence, and others like him have sort of taken uh, that question very seriously. Joseph, I wanted to uh, thank you for taking the time to come on. We're we're sort of out of time, but this would be a good starting point for our next interview with you, because uh, (laughs) there are many, many more areas uh, that we can go into with you, and your knowledge is so in-depth in so many areas that uh, one uh, interview just barely scratches the surface. So, uh, But thank you so very much for your time today, and uh, hopefully uh, uh, you can make some time in, sometime in the, in the near future where we can go into more depth. Oh, without question. I'll be happy to. And uh, I want to con- end by sort of congratulating both of you for... Uh, this this venture, uh, as I said, uh, I've looked at some of the people whom you've uh, sort of interviewed, and and the very idea of getting people to talk honestly and searchingly mm-hmm. about religion and spirituality, I think, is uh, a great service to society. Thank, well, thank, thank you, you very you, much. We appreciate yeah, that yeah. very much, and thanks for f- taking the time to be with us. And I'll uh, see you around Los Angeles yeah. soon. Okay. And I hope to see Thank you, you. Uh, next time I'm out there. I it's, hope so, Dennis. Yes, I, I very much look forward. So, so let me know. I mean, uh, you know, Phil has my email, and um, uh, certainly Phil also has my telephone. So uh, whenever you are coming to L.A., uh, let's make it a priority. Absolutely. We'll, we'll plan on it. Uh, you're listening to Spirit Matters, spiritmatterstalk.com. My name is Dennis Rumundi, my co-host, uh, Phil Goldberg author of American Veda, and our guest today, uh, Joseph Brabhu. Uh, Joseph, thank you so much again for taking the time to come on. Okay, thanks again. Bye-bye. Bye.